Welcome to the Intriguing Beings podcast with me, Rue Chater. Season 2, Episode 5, with Tom Court. Hi there, how are you doing? I hope you've been having a good week. I'm back with another episode. The Robbie Nash one, uh, which was the last one I released, has gone down exceedingly well. I've had loads of positive feedback about that, so thanks. And I'm glad you all enjoyed that conversation. Something a little bit different uh, this morning, and it's one of the conversations I had in South Africa earlier this year. It's with a guy called Tom Court, who has been a friend of mine for a very long time. I was doing the British Kite Surfing Championships way way back in the day and Tom was being driven around by his dad and entering the competitions and I've known him ever since then so probably about 20 years. What's interesting about Tom is he was of the era just around the time when Aaron Hadlow was kind of really making it and he was a young kid and he was given the option to either pursue a school career or to go on the world tour and travel around and it's interesting to see how two people have turned out quite differently Aaron obviously leaving school at um, a really young age and traveling the world tour and picking up five world championships and Tom probably arguably not had the same kind of success on a competitive level but he's really secured himself a career within the kiteboarding industry that's arguably second to none Um, he's really talented with videography and that's one of his big passions and he's made countless movies over the years he was an integral part in the free ride project film series and he's just got a real passion for editing and creating video content and that's what's kind of seen him through his professional career on top of being a very talented rider and i should say that because he is you know right up there with some of the world's best He's had a checkered career of late with um, a couple of horrific knee injuries and that's something that we talk about and you know he's been dealt some harsh deals over the last few years but he's come back and he's now back on the water and not as fit as he used to be because obviously two massive knee operations obviously set you back a little bit but it's great to see him back riding and enjoying the sport that he loves so we have a sort of far-reaching and meandering conversation it was recorded in Cape Town I recall we had a couple of beers I actually edited out a little section where we both completely forgot what we were talking about but it's a little bit more entertaining and a little bit um less intense than perhaps some of them it's just a bit of a a fun chat with someone who's had some incredible experiences during his quite young life so far so i really hope you enjoy that one a couple of um points to note before i move on just to say thanks so much for some of the feedback um that you've been passing on to me i've had a couple of really interesting phone calls of late about these podcasts and it's just so inspiring to hear you say how much you're enjoying them I guess and how much you um, you get out of these so hopefully I can continue to provide you with some good entertainment on your way to work or when you're on the train or whenever you've got a quiet moment and you feel like listening in um, I've got a bit of time away the next month. I mean, I'm always away, but the next month I'm spending traveling around Wales and Ireland. Uh, there's a couple of kite surfing competitions that I'm going to be going to. I've actually got a backlog of these that I need to work through. So I'm hoping that time alone in the van is going to allow me to get some edited and get some online. So I'm going to try and get back to a slightly less tardy um, routine with these. But anyway, thanks very much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy this week's episode 
episode. It's with Tom Court. He's an entertaining and funny person. And I think a few of you will get quite a lot out of this one. So enjoy. Today I am sat in a very nice house. I think this is Graham House's place from Dirty Habits. And we've got a stunning view over Cape Town and the Table Mountain in the distance and a few kites out there enjoying it. And I'm sat with a gentleman called Tom Court, who very kindly forwent a session on the water to do this podcast with me, and in doing so has just smashed his finger into an electrical box as he opened the door to let me in, so I feel a little bit guilty and a little bit bad, but I'm sure this is going to be solid content. And I've known Tom ever since he was a little kid, rolling around in his dad's big yellow old AA van, and they hailed from the Isle of Wight, and they used to do the British Kite Surfing Championships back when I was doing it, so God knows how long ago that was, but it was definitely a very long time ago. And since then, Tom's obviously become quite a well-rounded young man, and he's had quite an interesting career in the sport as well, with projects like the Free Ride Project, and becoming a key element of Duotone's production team with a lot of their videos in the old days and a lot of the stuff that they do now and things like that. So I thought it'd be an interesting person to chat to. So Tom, first question, living mm-hmm. on the Isle of the Wh- Isle of White, Isle of the White, Isle of White, yeah. obviously it's quite, you plug it as the active Isle because you get to do a lot of stuff for them. How did you get into water sports on there? Was your dad sort of a keen water sportsman that got you into it or yeah you know, I mean like my parents were a key were a key player in getting me involved in sport and supporting me throughout my you know kite surfing when I was younger and I think a lot of it came from where we lived and that was that is the Isle of Wight I mean we I call it the active island and we do a few things down there now moving in that direction but it really is a place where you can do everything like you can surf there you can kite there you can you know there's good skate parks it's amazing just access to the water and the sea is incredible down there for, for south coast of the UK. So that, that it definitely had a big part in why I got into, you know, kite surfing and sort of extreme sports in general. Because I used to just sack off school down on the Isle of Wight and just get to the coast as quickly as possible and get in the water and do something. And it was always just right on your doorstep, so it was easy. Yeah, well, that's the advantage of being on an island. I mean, you don't have much down there, but what you do have is incredible sea conditions and wind almost every day. And did you start with surfing or windsurfing? Or? Yes, I st- definitely. Um, I was always into almost all sports. I think skating was, some of my fir- was one of my first sports, and then I got into bodyboarding and surfing and moved towards the sea. And then windsurfing, um, when I was about eight years old, I think I started windsurfing properly. And then, yeah, moved all the way up and then eventually saw kite surfing. And I was like, that's, that's the one. And was your dad quite a big role in all of this? Because I used to see him dragging you around to the events and stuff like that. And he looked like he was being fairly supportive. Was he quite key in getting you into these kind of activities? Yeah, well, he, his passions were water sports were windsurfing was just getting out in the sea surfing from a young age for him as well so I, I grew up watching him do that in his spare time and uh, when I was younger he was always incredibly you know he always understood why I wanted to to be going and doing these things and, and encouraged it and you know supported me a lot in the early days of the BKSA and the kite surfing championships he used to, we, every weekend we used to just go off in the van and go somewhere different in the UK and go kiting, you know, and for him that was, he, he loved it as well. He used, yeah. I'm sure he used it as an excuse to go and do something like <laughs> that. Go you know? have a few beers with his So mates. yeah, the fact that my, both my parents really supported me in, in the pursuit of 
of the sea from a young age. I think that had a big, big part to play in why I thought I could go off and, you know. And how hard was it? Because living on an island, like the Isle of Wight, for those that don't know, it's right in the south of England. So every journey you do to go to a competition, for instance, you have to go on a ferry. Like, how hard is it to kind of add that into your planning and stuff like that? Yeah, well, I mean, the it is definitely it makes it harder to do things, especially like to get to the airport. Every time I got went wanted to go to the airport, it was sixty pounds on the ferry, and then another seventy pounds in a taxi. So you know, it add you know not only time but money to every trip. So it, it was sort of you were battling a little bit against adversity. But I think you know if that only motivated me further. You know, like I just it was harder for me to do things than most people but I you know it just drove Still me put to the effort in. in some way yeah do you think some people on the island wouldn't have put that effort in and would just be like you get the island fever don't you people just stay there because it's easier than well I know a lot of a lot of people it. on the island feel stuck you know feel, can feel stuck on the island by and like there's not much to do and like there's no opportunity job wise and things like that but I just I guess I just always made use and was taught to make use of what, what it had to offer which yeah. is just amazing space and water conditions and free riding conditions, surf and all, all of that stuff. And then the extra cost of getting off the island is what really encouraged me to find sponsors and to like, you know, to push down that direction. Because if I didn't do that, I would never have been able to afford it. So, yeah. you know, you can look at it like a negative or you can, you know, figure it out, rise up. And, and for sure, that's, you know, a reason why I kind of was more successful in sponsorship, I think, from a younger age, because I, I couldn't do it yeah. otherwise, you know. So you if had I to kind of push for it. Yes, I had to kind of push for it. So, yeah, I mean, everything has its part to play. Yeah, and you did quite well, because you were sponsored by Whitelink. Are you still sponsored by them to get was, you on and off, or...? Yeah, so that was the first, <laughs> that was one of my first sponsors, actually. Um, so you're not was, chasing the big kite dollars, you're like, get me someone to get me yeah, off the I island, because like, that's it, a big hit every it, time. It, it develops in a logical progression like that. Like my first, I was like, right, so how am I going to get to an event? First, I've got to go off the island, right to the ferry company. So they were like my, one of my first contact sponsors, and they would give us free tickets if we were going to an event and stuff. So I already had my gateway, and then I could go to other. You know, I went to I was sponsored by Animal for a very long time, and they were always good to me. And I was like, I'm sponsored by a ferry company. And once you start getting a bit of a portfolio together, um, you you build momentum. And I think you know, it was never sponsorship and being a professional. Kiter was never really why I got into it. It was more it happened that way in order to facilitate me to get to the events and to, and to yeah. do it. So it was kind of it was a natural progression. I never thought, right, I'm going to be pro at this. You know, it's just like okay, let's figure out a way. You to just make had it to get off the island, and that cost you money. So you started getting sponsored by the ferry company, and then it yeah, so was a, a, yeah, yeah a, reaction, like, a reaction to to the situation a I guess. to it. And what was your best result in the UK? I won like British Junior Championships, I think 2000, so the, I think it was 2002. Okay. I remember like my first event, I think it was 2000 or 2001 in Weymouth. So and it was one back. of Aaron's first events, and that's where me and Aaron first ever met. And when I also realized other kids did it, you know, because yeah. it was like, at the time, nobody kited that, that much, and it was weird to like go to a place where there were five people out, you'd be like, what? What? What's going yeah. on? And one of them was another kid. Um, so I got like junior British BKSA title in 2002. And then I got a, a top flight title, I think, in conjunction with Sam Kirby in 2003 or four. Yeah. So I was sort of like around the top level of, of 
the UK at that time. And then Aaron made a break for the international scene at the time, which, you know, he gave up school and things to, to go on to the world tour, which was perfect timing for him. And, um, yeah, I made a decision at the time to stay at school and stay on the island because I was surrounded by good kiting conditions anyway. And then as soon as I'd uh, finished A-levels and stuff, I just... Uh, yeah, followed, followed hit the road. Road. That's really, yeah, hit the road and went straight to Did you find it quite hard staying on the island and staying in school and not... Because Aaron was, well, I think, one of the first people that... Nowadays, parents are just taking their kids out of school left, right and centre because it's that Aaron effect of, oh, well, Aaron Hadlow is five-times world champion and he's a megastar now in kiteboarding, so I think I can do the same with my kids. So at the time, you know, it was quite trailblazing for him to do that, I guess. So for you, was it hard to watch and go, oh my God, he's won another world title and I'm still sat here doing my schoolwork? It was, yeah, it was. I was given the choice. Um, I was definitely given the choice by my parents and it was definitely on the cards, but I always enjoyed, uh, you know, I enjoyed like the social side of school and I, you know, I didn't ever have, and I enjoyed living where I enjoyed living on the island. I think that yeah. helped. I so think if I was unhappy conditions. at school, I would have probably made a break for it a bit early. But <laughs> you know, as it, as it was, yeah, I didn't feel the need to to break away that early because when at a very young age, you need to be with somebody. You need to, it wasn't really available. My parents weren't going to come travelling around the world with me. And, <laughs> you know, at fifteen, you're not going to. Your dad's limit was driving the van up. To my Scotland first trip actually was at fifteen, and I booked a ticket from my back room on dial-up internet. <laughs> to Brazil, yeah, to Brazil to meet Jaime. No way. Yeah, and uh, he said that there was like a camp on or whatever. And was I that said the Young Guns camp. It was one of the very early stage, yeah, very first sort of meetups of the Young Blood thing. And uh, Jaime had a house in Brazil, and I booked my ticket on like I love net, and uh, just booked it because I'd had I had some money saved and uh, then went out and I remember telling my parents printing off the dinner that I booked a ticket to Brazil no yeah. way what did they say and, uh, they, well I told them that Jaime <laughs> was sorting it all out and he was like re fully responsible and uh, yeah he wasn't there at the airport to meet me and I was in Fortaleza <laughs> lost but then once I figured you know once you figure it out then that was that you work was, it all uh, out yeah start I mean it was weird going back to school and sitting in the same class having been to know, Brazil having uh realize you can do those sorts of things but that's you know a part of education isn't it I think. yeah it's all part of the learning thing i think it's one of those things that it kind of um it, yeah it's not it's not traditional education but just that experience makes you grow up quite quickly rapidly gives you a massive amount of responsibility yeah, and it sets you on a path that then all of a sudden you appear much older than your years and you know you, it matures you quite a lot i think those kind of experiences yeah an hour in fortaleza in brazil on your own at 15 is yeah it's years years aging right years aging right there it's, yeah. not, it's, not, it's not the not the nicest of airports to be hanging around in if you don't know who's coming to pick you up how did you get out of there? Just get in a taxi or something and say... Oh, I ended up actually... Or... I mean, that's like the, the kite network, which was a lot smaller at that, that time. Because, I mean, you, you booked it on dial-up internet, it was so like, we're not talking yeah, WhatsApp I think we're or... talking 2003 or... Yeah, so your mobile phone's no use whatsoever. You can't no, get online. Oh, yeah, and... I don't know. No, yeah, it wasn't really... The... Can't email yeah, yeah, there was no the Google airport. Maps, yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and there was a guy, in, the only other guy in the airport with a board bag, and I was a bit like loose end. I was like, what am I going to do? And then 
Yeah, so another guy with a board bag went up, spoke to him. He didn't speak any English, but I just got in a van with him and just went back to a posada, <laughs> stayed the night in the posada and figured it out from there. Yeah. No way. But he was kiting as well and he knew, so, he knew Cesar Portas, who was a team member at the time. And it was like, you know, it was, yeah, it was it one of those kind of weird out. situations yeah, that only, yeah, you can only get. Speak to random people with board bags. Only kiting can deliver, yeah. Airports. That's great, isn't it? I love the fact that you can be in an airport at the age of 15 and just go up some with a board bag and it'll all just work out because they're going to be cool about it and yeah, yeah it did. not be not be out of order and just leave a 15-year-old kid in Fortaleza Airport. <laughs> yeah. Was that the kind of start of your... Because you had quite a prolific international career where you did quite a lot of travelling and went to quite a lot of the, the PKRA events, I guess they were at the time and things yeah, like that. Yeah, I think I was lucky in the early days. I mean, I... The PKRA was the uh, competition series to, to be part of at that time, or at least in my eyes. Um, there were a few around, but yeah, the PKRA was the focus, and Aaron had already, you know, Aaron had trailblazed the way there. And yeah, the whole time I was, you know, following the progress and following it, keeping an eye on it, and thinking, oh, it's, you know, it's possible. So, you know, eventually when it came down to taking a gap year between A levels and university, I got a place in Brighton to study English literature, which I enjoyed, but, you know, let's face it, wasn't really going to lead to, <laughs> you know, a solid job job offer. But um, So I took a gap year and then went and just followed the PKRA, and that was my gap year. And then as I, you know, eventually got I got into it, started placing top five, top seven, you know, and did a couple of, like, first and seconds in the best tricks and things like that. You just, I just got momentum. And then phoning up the university the next year, deferring it, and then going off for another year, and then phoning up the university again, deferring, deferring it again, again, and then going off for another year. And then on like my third or fourth gap year, <laughs> I get a call from the university admissions office. I was caught. Are you uh, taking Ever your... Ever coming, yeah. Are you going to take your place? Because if not, <laughs> somebody else wants it. <laughs> so what did you say so, to that? So, yeah, no, I just had to like say, yeah, give it to somebody else. I mean, by that point... You were kind of living the I'd dream. I kind of committed to it um, psychologically, and I also think by that point as well, I'd proved to my parents, you know, I wasn't phoning up my parents going, hey guys, can you pay for a flight? Or like, there, there was no, you know, I was self sufficient. Yeah, so you were getting enough so, money from sponsorships and yeah, winnings. I'd and made stuff it self sufficient just about, and, you know, I proved that it was doable to myself, I think, more than anyone else. And then, uh, yeah, it made it easier to cancel the education. Cancel schedule, the education. Yeah. Did you ever go back for the education? No. Not really. Um, I mean, like, yeah, certain courses and different things, but only really down things that I'm interested in. I mean, I think I probably used 10% of what I ever learned in traditional education in my, in my life. It's always the way, isn't it? Um, yeah, and, you know, travelling taught me most. I look back okay. at everything I've done and I just think, well, I had to go to school because you had to go there, but I never ended up going to university and... Everyone always says, no, you're a qualified journalist. I'm like, no, I just kind of fell into this job. Yeah. You know, I guess if you've got the natural skills for something, you've got the natural skills for it. And I think people, you know, you're not educated. Well, a lot of people aren't educated to follow what they really enjoy. And I think, you know, my support from my parents and from, you know, people at a young age, I just always gravitated towards what I enjoyed. And I only had, a, you know, a place at university because I thought I was going to enjoy the place, not because I was going to get something out of it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that, for me, that was just always the logical thing. And I think, you know, moving forward, for a lot of people, I think that's, that's a really key thing to learn rather than go, rather than going towards something you think you should be doing, go towards something you really enjoy doing. And then that's like how you get the most out of yourself. Yeah. If you can turn a passion into something that 
is where you live your life, then yeah. you're going to be happy, right? Yeah. It's a tricky one, I guess, because there's always that work trap that you can get stuck into, which I got stuck into myself. I went away and was a windsurfing instructor for six years and loved it. But then I had this weird thing that thought, oh, maybe I should get a proper job. Then I got a proper job and went, oh, I don't like this. <laughs> and then by then I was stuck with like nice cars and yeah, houses well, and all the you rest either, of it. You either don't just... look outside the box yeah. <laughs> first and then stay in it for a bit and then leave or you, yeah, you find a... You've got to try and find a way of staying in that box. Yeah, it's and a tricky one. Realizing that although the box isn't perfect, it's a lot better than a lot of situations that you can end up being in. Yeah, I mean, it is a big topic, I think, nowadays that. And, uh, you know, kite surfing opened opportunities for me that I would never have ever thought were possible and probably never would be possible otherwise, you know. So there's there's a lot to be said with going going with the flow and that uh, on that the thing front, is, I think. I've been wanting to do a whole series of articles about people that have just turned their lives up around for kiteboarding. And I noticed someone posting on Facebook the other day and it was like, oh, has anyone ever given up their high-powered job? And yeah, yeah, kind sure, of that, And I was like, hundreds of people, like literally I know so many people that have just learned to kiteboard and gone, that's it, I'm giving up work and I'm going kiting around the world and I'm going to be a kite instructor and enjoy my life. And that's yeah, what I, I mean, it's it. got, you know, you just get blown with the wind. You just like, you're gone, see you later. Yeah, just one of those... Before you know, you've got no money and you're a kite instructor in East Asia. Yeah, <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> bin but tangs you are the happiest you've ever been. Yeah, but bin tangs are cheap, so it all works <laughs> out, doesn't it? Exactly, I know. So there's one thing I want to ask you about, and you don't have to answer it, but okay. I feel that I couldn't do a podcast without doing it because I, oh, remember, bump I, know, I remember bumping it. You're thinking, what's this story? I remember bumping into you at the Paul Windfest at the yeah. time. And I think we actually had a chat in a caravan about it. And I asked you a fairly lewd question, which I won't repeat. But you obviously, at that very early period of your life, there was a girl called Susie May who there was, was kiteboarding. Well, there is a girl called Susie May. Yeah. Still around, but she <laughs> is like... At that time, she was kiteboarding's pinup. You know, there was a lot of girls that kited, but I remember all the kite brands were just falling over themselves to find, like, the super hot blonde chick. And this girl, Susie May, was the super hot blonde chick that was, you know, absolutely stunning, amazing kiter and everything. And all of a sudden, you rock up at Paul Winfest and she's your girlfriend. And you must have been looking at pictures of her in magazines before that, thinking she's nice. And then all of a sudden, she's yours. Like, how was that? Uh, well, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was, you know, definitely also she facilitated me getting into, you know, a lot of the international travel in the early days, I think. And like, you know, we were always friends and the kitesurfing community um, revolved a lot around Cabaretta and yeah. things like that and places in the Dominican Republic where she lived. So, yeah, we, I think we had a relationship for a few years, three years probably. And, uh, you know, she was already on the, the train of pro-kiterdom, uh, so I guess, at the time. And I get, I got, you know, I was, uh, you know, I got to see things that I would never have been, at, you know, been understood able to really, yeah, or, or even understood if I hadn't been hanging out with her. So, you know, we hung out a lot in those, you know, in those years and like different situations, different places. And, and a lot of, she was always going to the biggest events and like the Red yeah. Bull events and different things. I met a lot of different people. And then, yeah, we sort of ended up, she was going one way with her career and I was sort of staying in the kiting. You know, I was quite young, so I was staying, you know, my mind was just kiting, 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 kiting. So like, yeah. that's, that's the way I was going. But she really paved the way, definitely, in like my understanding of, of the kite industry and like 
how to how to go about it. So it definitely yeah. yeah helped me a lot in the early days, showing me the industry. I mean, I was already sponsored before we met and things like that. But, but it was introducing you to certain yeah. people that were maybe not quite yeah, and it was industry it was related. Just, it was more like it was again like more like an education. You get you know you just need a reason to go somewhere to do something, and if you've got the reason. And you go and do it. You learn the lessons from that, you know. So it was, uh, it was a great reason to be roaming the world and to like see how, you know, see the amazing places that there are. Are you breathing a sigh of relief that I haven't asked you about something else? <laughs> no, no, you got, you've gone pretty deep. With that one, but, you know, I feel like I can deal with the rest of the interview now. <laughs> got that one uh, out of the way. Yeah, yeah. I only asked because I remember just being like, "Wow, Tom Court's going out to Susie May. That's crazy." I, like, I, I went little kid. I think I know from zero from, to hero pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, it was like this little kid that I knew from doing the BKSA events is suddenly rocking around with the hottest thing on. Yeah. Kite surfing's planet. I didn't really know what was going on. Today. <laughs> I was like... Swept up by it all, blown with the wind. Yeah, blown, blown with the wind. Rolling exactly. with the punches and yeah. going with it and seeing what happens. Exactly, yeah. And you've carved like an interesting career because a lot of the time I talk to people in these podcasts and most of the people I talk to aren't just pro riders because I find that not necessarily, of course, it's not a boring thing. It's amazing if you're the best at the sport and you're most fantastic. I find it more interesting the people that have like carved a niche for themselves out of it. And I think one of the things that I wanted to chat to you about was obviously your videography and you're super passionate about it. But when did that kind of start? Because you've been producing movies for a long, long time. When we had a joke about the recorder that I'm recording this on, you've, you bought it like eight years ago for 700 quid or something oh, ridiculous. Longer, yeah. And it looks almost the same as the one I've got that cost me 250 quid that, you know. So you've been doing it for a long time. So how did you get into that? And what, what drove that passion, I guess? Well, my, yeah, my whole, I mean, I guess my reason for kites, I always competed, you know, whether it was on the UK tour back in the day or then I think my PKRA campaign was like 2008 through 13 or 12 or something like that and um, so I've always competed but my real drive uh, with kite surfing and it, you know my real interest was, was always videography and I'd always got you know inspired myself with videos of you know whether it was RIP windsurfing or whether it was picture this snowboarding movies or whether it was you know the Some of those classic early days VHSs. awake or autofocus or all the other early early DVDs that you, at the time you had to go a long way to get in England on the iFi. Like, yeah, well, you, you know, wouldn't be you able to get really, one like you'd drive really battle to, to find them. them. Yeah. So that was my early days like into the sport and what kept me into it. And I always wanted to make movies myself and always had a deep little DV, I think it was DV tape when we first started. Um, and then it was HDV tape after that. So we, you know, I've always messed around with cameras. So, and then that, sort of translated into kite surfing and then rather than like my attention being solely on winning events it was more about portraying the What's sport going on yeah well the sport how i wanted it to be seen which trans yeah ended up moving into wake style and being more concentrated on the, the good sessions than just you know the you going somewhere to compete and uh, and pushing yourself through competition and we were pushing ourselves through a more creative means, pushing each other, trying to get a good shot, trying to get a better trick on camera and really chasing that. And that ended up being the Freeride Project 1, 2 and 3, yeah. which was originated with James, Bolding, Sam Light and myself and in Australia in 2011. So that 
that was the end of my that was pretty much the end of my world tour campaign it was, okay. was, was the start of those movie that movie series because I spoke to James Balding about that in a previous podcast and I said that you four riders were probably the first people that stepped away from the competition scene and created a career outside of that just by making movies and that at the time was pretty trailblazing like I don't think anyone have, I mean okay you've got guys like Dre and stuff like that but I don't really feel like anyone made their like their mark on it like you guys did. I think you really put a stamp on it at that time. Yeah, we, we kind of, within within our groups, that started with James, Sam and myself, just the three of us in Australia, and then we sort of pitched the idea to Aaron, <laughs> you know, at the time, who was, I think, he'd already got four world titles. He was at a moment where he didn't really know, you know, what to do next or where to go, and he, I think he needed a bit of time away from the, the world tour. And we just pitched it to him and said, "Hey, come and like, you know, come and ride with us. We want to do this project, and we need, you know, we need like a bit of momentum with it." So, and he was like, "Yeah, well, why not? Let's have a year off." So, and push push himself. He was in just pushing himself in a different way, and I think that came across quite well in the first movie. And the fact that we managed to pull it off, deliver yeah. it, and it was received reasonably well. And at the time, like I think we got like sixty, seventy thousand views, which and it was on a shoestring, right? It was yeah, basically well, I mean, more was, cash that yeah, put it, it together. Just, you didn't have yeah, much pure, support for it. There was no budget for the movie, really. And at the time, that was quite an effort. The seven D, the Canon seven D had just come out. I think. Yeah. Uh, so, like, literally, that was the time. So, the Canon seven D had just come out, and James bought it. And I was like, "Oh man, go get one of those." And, that yeah. was that was the the beginning of it. We were just like, right, this is the camera we're going to make a movie on, and let's film our year, and let's let's do it, and invoice as much as it we can to like you know, whoever we can, and uh, see what we can. Do. And like, we, yeah, we were renting heli, we rented a few helicopters, and like, you know, we did a few very cool things for our, for the time, and also for our age at the time, it was pretty cool. But you know, people were just waiting to see whether we could actually deliver it. And then, of course, you did deliver it, and it was a massive success. Yeah. Was there, like, a bit of surprise from the people that supported you that, that actually pulled off, or did they kind of probably always... Probably, we were... Everyone was surprised. Even yeah, you were surprised. Yeah, I was surprised. Yeah. <laughs> you made it happen. Um, but, yeah. The other thing at that time was because the internet had been around for a while. And so, I mean, I remember things like Autofocus, you already mentioned, Rip, some of those old movies. Um but then once the internet came along, there was a big step away from doing like a feature length film. Like I remember Slingshot used to do the Slingshot movie and it was always like, oh my God, Slingshot movie's coming out. This is amazing. It's like a 30 yeah. minute film that you watch. And then when the internet came, that all kind of died. But you kind of brought that back because the Free Ride Project was a half an hour full length DVD, but online. Yeah, ra- yeah, ranging from half an hour to I think 40 minutes on the second one. I mean, long, long format um, is still there. And it's still, it's a different creative outlet for sure. But the distribution changed, like you say. Like now people just want those short, impact, three-minute clips, semi-advertising clips, you know, for for Facebook and things like that. But, you know, making a movie is a whole different, it's a different thing. It like betrays more than just a that film. moment. It's, yeah. a, it's a comment on the time that you had. It's a comment on the, you know, the year or, you know, however long it is. I think people still really enjoy that. I think people always will, but it's just, you know, you've got a lot of people pushing for the, for the shorter things, like brands and things like that. I think what, what was also really interesting about the Freeride Project and us as riders is we weren't all from the same brand. It wasn't brand related necessarily. Yeah. We were just using ourselves and what we were doing as a platform for 
Yeah, because you're all from different that, brands. Because yeah. was James Liquid Force the first one, or was mm-hmm. he Cabrina by then? But I think it was Liquid Force. Liquid, yeah. Me. yeah, and then you were on. Well, Liquid Liquid actually Liquid Force built us a set of custom boots for that first movie. They did, didn't they? Yeah, with our initials on the back. So we and had like little, uh, you know, uh, by the se- Jack flag. By the time we were going into the second movie, we had a set of like custom bindings with our names on them. <laughs> like, you're like, and you're like wow, that movie escalated quickly. We, yeah. should, probably, we should probably do another one. Um, and then <laughs> that got it, out of hand real quick. Yeah, People like that. And then uh, yeah, I mean it was good. But then you know it comes external pressures and life changes, and you know like things move on. You end up doing different things. Yeah, Second so I guess movie you did, was, the three of you, well, the four of you did three movies. Yeah. And then I guess at some point you're like, are we going to do a fourth? And it's just like everyone's doing different stuff. Like, Well, the third one was already a lot more like me. It was, it was a lot more like vlog style than it, than the, the other movies had been because there wasn't really opportunity to to link up as much as we used to, you know, and everyone had different and, schedules and different agendas. So it was, became harder and harder to get it together like that. You I know? guess you're almost victims of your own success in that situation. Like the first one, no one's really bothering you. You're just four guys. You think, oh, let's yeah, do this. No, or, no three guys, let's do this. Let's get Aaron involved. And then he's like, yeah, I fancy a year off. So it all just works. And then by the time the third one comes around, everyone's blown up because yeah. of the movie. And then their schedule's completely booked because, oh, we want James Bolden doing this. And oh, we want Sam doing this. And oh, we want... Yeah, that's, that's plus their own careers of everyone's own careers move forwards a little bit. I mean, Sam's gone on to be you know prolifically phenomenal on pipe on the park scene. Yeah, in terms of winning events and things like that. So then their sponsors are like, well, actually, I don't just want you doing that. I want you doing this now. Yeah, you get pushed pushed this way and that. Like, all of us had our different things, and you know, it's not a fluid. It's not a a set thing being a pro kite surfer. You know, it's like it's not. It's like being, I mean, everyone goes, oh, you're a pro kite surfer. I'm like, oh, man, it's amazing. <laughs> and you're like, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, and it is incredible because you're doing what you want to do. But it's not It's not like somebody goes, hey, here's your pro kite surfer salary. And you're, that's what you do for it. It's like being a freelancer and you're agile. And like everyone, all, all of us had different pressures and different things going in different directions and different strengths. Um, so, yeah, it did, you know, it's become harder to do it. But then we're still seeing each other. We're still at the same events. We're still... It's still very much happening. It's just that, uh, you know, the creativity that got us, I guess, to that stage is now being like directed in other, in other ways. I still want to, I still want to do another one. Yeah. Do you think, well, it could happen, couldn't it? Well, after every one, I say, I'm never making a movie again, ever in my life. And then you, and then like you need a year's rest and then you start coming around to the idea again. Oh, you know, maybe I'll do another one. Yeah. Maybe it's a bit like being pregnant. You know, people like, well, yeah, doing that again. And then they go, oh, I've forgotten about all the pain and anguish because your brain just makes it flip. Yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah. There's probably a lot of women like this listening to this now just going, did he just say that making a movie is like being pregnant? As if Rue really knows what being pregnant is. Yeah, exactly. Like, for those people listening, I haven't. I've literally got nine months recovery on my leg, so maybe yeah. I'm not. Even, I'm going to shut Mate, up now. I'm just digging myself can't. a hole now. This is bad. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, Ray. Tell us, Ray. What's pregnancy like? Oh, it's you know, like breaking your leg, putting it back on, and then no, I'm not. It's not even. Not even going to go there. I'm yeah. going to edit this bit out. So, <laughs> it's getting cut, or maybe not. Just for shits and gigs. We'll uh, see. Put it off. Put it at the end. Um, and so some of the movie projects you've done since then, like there are a lot, you do, I mean, you're still prolifically making movies, you know, you're doing a lot of different stuff. You've got Rip Slick Productions. Yeah. Do you do stuff outside the kiting industry as well? For Yeah, I mean, so in terms of the business side of production and like video and things like that, 
it, it also developed very organically for me, just like my involvement with video, you know, it was, it was more of a passion. And um, I started my company sort of pretty much when I left university, sorry, when I left uh, school, really, or left sixth form, just looked into it, realized that they don't educate you on taxes or anything like that. It's and you the mad like, thing about education, right? It just blows right? my mind. How do you, you start a company? Thinking, no one's told you how. Where am I? Yeah. yeah like, and you don't know any of those Trigonometry so is not going to help you right there. I looked into it. I figured the best way to not do, you know, to do the least is just to start a company. So I started the company, which was Rip Slicks, which actually was a friend, a couple of friends and myself, whilst we were at school, had a company shaping skin boards. Which was nice. called Rip Slicks. And I just like ran with that and thought, well, I'll incorporate it. So it became a limited company. And then that developed from there. And then you sort of educate into that. And then that became a production company. And then um, built very sort of organically with my interest in filming and, you know, my experience within the sport, which then translated into working for brands like Red Bull, filming events, uh, editing events like at this, like at the King of the Air. Um, covering the Kite Park League and we, you know, came into that sort of thing where we started a world tour kind of ourselves and then you know had the production and everything set up for that and then you know companies like Armani eventually have worked for Renault um, different car companies like it expanded very you know very organically through passion you know and, and as I learned through different things the company grew and has grown into its own, you know, its own thing, I guess, in its own right. So that, you know, for me, as was, was important to have that focus outside of kite surfing. And I guess, you know, that's what gave me the confidence in many ways to chase, you know, com- competitive things and like, you know, be a professional athlete, as they say, was the fact that I was developing something in the background along with, you know, what I was doing within kite surfing. So you kind of knew you had a fallback plan. Yeah, and I just but, sponging up information really, and like like my CV is my is my degree really, yeah. like, and that's how I went into it. I went like when as soon as I decided not to go to university, I was like, right, I'm going and doing this. I'm doing this like you know, I'm learning from this. I'm building sponsorship portfolios. I'm you know doing getting involved in production. I'm like gonna movies really, together. Like, yeah, I'm going to figure a... out you know which element of this industry I want. I like you know. So then, worst case, I, I know where I'm at. You know. So I think it, on a lot of levels, it's worth going into it with a plan, a little plan, even if you don't know what kind you're doing. A, yeah, I mean, I've never known what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, they say some of the most interesting people in the world are those that still don't know what they want to do yet, because you'll just do whatever comes along and see what happens. And yeah, it's a process of elimination, and you know, I, yeah, film filming has always been top of my list in terms of, you know, I've always sat for hours on my own just editing random bits of footage, like even before. You could upload it anywhere. I mean, it was just something the, that you enjoyed doing. Something that I did, yeah, sort of subconsciously, I guess. And I taught myself Photoshop, taught myself Final Cut, taught myself Premiere. You know, didn't go to production school or anything. I mean, like this that. is the thing but, these days: you can you can learn anything you want mm. off the internet. You know, yeah, you don't even have to do anything. Recently, stuff. I just renovated a house as well. In, just in off the, the UK, internet, off YouTube. Yeah, I did everything: put underfloor heating in, reinsulated it, brought new floor slab, the whole lot. Just from just from YouTube, off the yeah, internet. in three months. It's nuts, isn't it? Alex, my brother, that does all the tech for the IK Surf Mag website, speaks like nine different computer languages or something ridiculous. And when he went to university, he did do something with the computers, but he's taught everything that he's done, like building apps, doing this, doing that, whatever, just all off the internet. He's like, well, just Google it. 
Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. In, many, like, if in many ways, chuck it in Google. You can find out whatever. I googled how to make a podcast. You know, like, <laughs> how to do that. Like, I, I've got a bunch of interviews, and then yeah, you just Google it. Are, yeah, that self-education things are quite interesting. I think I think that's aspect. key. That's key in any anything you do like that, and but that goes hand in hand with what I said earlier about just gravitating towards what you enjoy, because that self-education thing becomes effortless because you just you know just. Googling, daydreaming, and just find you know you find find out something about what you like, don't you? Yeah. You're known for a few comedy series of videos, <laughs> so things like the Dirty Panda from yeah. Fertiventura was quite amusing, and also yeah. the Kite Launcher. What's the kind of driving force behind that? Is that just your own sense of humour coming out, where you think, oh, this is going to be really fun, I'm going to put it together and make it, or are other people involved? Yeah, I mean, I've always enjoyed comedy, and for me, it's, you know, it's a big part of everything I do, my life in general, I've, I laugh at it a little bit, you know, it helps in many situations, and I think, yeah, the Kai launch is just, you know, I just, you look at, look at the industry as a whole thing, he's funny, he's laughing here. I mean, it was when it first um, came out, I remember it was pretty groundbreaking that, you know, well, yeah, here's it, this whole heavily made production value video, and I'll put a link to one in this podcast, about a bloke who launches kites but won't land them, yeah. and takes it super seriously that he's just it was It's a parody on, on athletes, you know, in general, at the time it was more ironic because production value was harder to come by you know so it was like at the time it was a bit more cutting edge than it is now but it's uh yeah it, that, i don't know if you've noticed but the whole kite launcher series is a is a is a metaphor for my career within kite setting. i know you look okay. at all the different episodes and like it's, it's basically taking the piss out of myself and you know the different elements that i've found hilarious about about what i've done in, in my career so it's kind of a running commentary really of what's going on of what I you know where I've been at or where I'm at yeah and you've just given it a bit of a reboot right yeah we're firing up a bit of a rebranding you know thought it was uh, topical because not Kick many people rebranding at the moment yeah. so there's another question I'm going everything's on. changed except uh, the name except the everything <laughs> and what I do which yeah, is just yeah, yeah, yeah. because I still launch yeah. don't yeah. land them yeah. um, another question I'm going to ask you kite kooks yeah. Is that you? No. <laughs> I wish. Do you not know who it is? I do. I do. I have been. I have. I've got a pretty good idea and I was told who it is, but I've not had it confirmed. So you, so you do know? Yeah. I think I know who no, it is. Yeah, I've, uh, I've had no leads on that. Because it's quite funny because when it first came out. It's I getting better and better though. I thought it was hilarious. Shame he called himself. He changed his name on Instagram. He lost his kite kook's name. Yeah, I heard that. Rookie. Took, took the. Uh, Take the dry humour too far. Yeah. And, got, <laughs> and, lost off. His, and lost his whole brand name. I know, it was dumb. But yeah, it was quite funny. When it first came out, I thought this has got Tom Court written all over I it. I know, I know. Well, there's been some... You, you know, must get been, a finger pointed at you quite a lot when stuff like that happens. Because yeah. you're the one that's always poking fun at the industry. Everyone else seems to be taking it really seriously. And you're the the person that, you know, if anyone's going to poke a bit of fun and do something a bit risque, it's like, oi, Tom's at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's important as an industry to have a, a sense of humour about yourself. I mean, like, the whole sport's a, le- it's a leisure sport and we're dealing with people in their leisure time and, you know, it's, it's a fun thing. I think, you know, it's very easy for things to get too serious, isn't it, and to to focus on one thing or the other. And I think, it's, yeah, it's, I think people like kite geeks. People like, you know, with you know, throwing things out there, throwing jokes out there. I mean, it's a good... It's a necessary 
yeah. necessary evil, I guess. It's not like know. we're in banking or something, is it? You I know. know. I mean, having fun. It's and about it's fun. I, the secret, really, like, is just to kite for fun. I mean, that's that's all I've ever done, and I just yeah, always joking with friends. So, luckily, a friend of mine's uh, likes launching kites. <laughs> so you get to make <laughs> a whole comedy series with him. Um, You've had a few injuries over the years, and as I say that, I'm just looking down at the scars on your knee, which are yeah. extensive. Nine incisions, mate, on the second one. Ooh. You second had, I mean, your knee was like a real, like you, you did it, you got better, and then you did it pretty much your first session back, right? What it's, was the first injury that you picked up? Man, it's something you have to deal with, physically and psychologically, I guess, when you go, when you decide to compete and be a... Sorry, be a pro kiter is is injury. I think any any athlete's any athlete's worst nightmare being injured and like you know avoiding injury and you have you, it's always in the back of your mind. It was always in the back of mine, and that was what drove me to build up my production company and do like other things in the back end of the because industry. Because you had time off the water, because, I guess. No, no, because I knew at some point. Okay. You know, like from an early so you're age, preempting it before from an early you got age, I knew that you know. If two I have that big crash, equals four. Yeah, and you can't just wear a knee brace and have a car crash and expect to be fine. But I, I was I was lucky. You know, I, I went for a long time in the industry, riding as hard as I possibly could Without with boots injured. and like hitting rails and doing stupid things over rocks and like doing all this stuff. You know. Uh, without getting injured, and I, you know, I was very lucky um, to get as far as I did without getting injured. And then, you know, eventually it hits. You know, like it was two thousand and sixteen Triple S. Um, it's my ninth year at the Triple S, so I've like already done nine years just at the world's and, biggest wake style contest. You know, and not been injured. Heavy landing after heavy landing um, for years and years and years. It, you know, the time was ticking really, but that doesn't make it any easier when it when it hits. And then yeah, then I was, you know, considering I'd been thinking that this is coming and it's going to probably happen at some point, I was so focused on getting back to the same place I was before the injury, sorry, before the injury, that I just didn't really learn from it, you know. <laughs> I can learn within, I got the injury wildcard invite back to Triple S 2008-17, which is yeah. no, less a year yeah, literally since a year the since injury, you did it. and I went back thinking I was going to take it easy and all this stuff. And Competitive nature boom, came out. same trick, same place. Almost the same day, off the same kicker with the same guy that picked me up. Off so the back almost of the, jet the anniversary. Ski. Of so it. it was like just deja vu, yeah. Which uh, you're like, as this year. But I, the only difference the second time is I knew exactly again. what I was going to have to deal with when I got back home, and I knew about you know the second surgery was so much worse, and recovery time slower, and a year or two older, and you know, and then real life starts to rush up on you pretty quick, and uh, and yeah, but you know, like everything. You, you can get something positive out of the negative. I mean, like, for sure, looking back on it, it was, I think it needed to happen twice, otherwise I wouldn't have... Uh, learned from it. I wouldn't have learned from it. So, yeah, everything happens for a reason, and definitely I got positive things out of it in terms of my direction and my personal development and things like that that I wouldn't have got if I'd just been concentrating and competing and, and things like that the whole time, so... Yeah, I mean, it's a long few years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's tough, isn't it? You do it and then you get back on the water, you're super stoked, and then you just go and do the same thing 
psychologically a lot harder than that's I mean dealing with an injury is hard psychologically anyway to stay positive and to be like look it's just time and I've just got to bank the time and I'm going to get back on the water it's going to be okay but then to literally get back on the water and just be like bang done again yeah I think like the you know the best the best thing at all not the best thing but like the thing that took me by surprise the most was the psychological impact of it because I you know in my mind I've been preparing for it had all the pieces of the puzzle in place that I, you know I could have a year up and I could work and I could do all this other stuff and um, but yeah the psychological impact of it was so much more severe than I gave it justice you know than I gave it importance and I think yeah if I could give anyone advice you know especially if they're deep into it and they're competing and they're really you know focusing hard in that direction it's don't underestimate the psychological impacts of it yeah treat it seriously speak to speak to friends speak to people speak to professionals about it you know and uh, and make sure you deal with that before you deal with the physical things because if you don't deal with the psychological impact the physical injury will come back to haunt you yeah I think that's good advice. You have to aim for who you will become after the injury, not to who you were before it. That's sound advice, Tom. And I think, yeah, it's something that I learned hard, the hard way. Definitely. Yeah. And it, you know, it changes your outlook because it changed the way you ride now. Like you're back kiting and you've just done a really nice video about, you know, my year and how I've come back from, you know, this horrific injury and stuff like that. When you hit the water now, do you approach it differently or? Just, I mean, I always was into kiting just for the enjoyment. I've never really you know, never really done it for any other reason. But yeah, when I was faced with the potential of never never kiting again, or never walk, you know, never walking properly, or never getting back on the water, it makes you love the sport for a whole different reason. You're far less focused on the tiny details and much more like, I just enjoy the session and take it as it comes, you know, like pushing too hard or anything like that. But yeah, the love of the sport shines through at the end of the day, I think. Otherwise you just turn your head and go the other way. Yeah, do something else. Which is also, you know, if you don't deal with the psychological impacts, something that you might may have to do. Have you got any lasting like damage, or are you back to one hundred percent now? Do you think? I don't. You know, the knee will always be different. I mean, that was, you know, give you a few stats. I was something like nine hours under anaesthetic, thirteen days in hospital, um, two grafts, the full meniscus stitched up, like artificial ligaments, stem cell injections, like the whole deal on the second surgery, six weeks immobile in bed, like unable to stand on it. So that's, so, like, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And then you come back like 13 months later, it will never be the same knee that I had before. But it's, yeah, 80%, 90%. Like I'm not thinking about it and I'm, I'm there, but my mind is just in a different place. You know? Like I'm not thinking, hey, that's blowing 30 knots. I'm going to go out and pull the trigger on, on a new back roll on a KGB. Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> not bothered about that anymore. You know, you've got to kind of move away from the adrenaline a little. Yeah, just stick with what you know. Mm. You, um, you know, a lot of guys pick up knee injuries. Do you think the sport does enough in terms of the technology around it, in terms of the education around it, in terms of the expectations around it to protect young people from picking up these injuries? Because it's... It's, a, it's definitely a topic. Um, I mean, and but you know, the deeper you go into it, the more you realise that even even in the h- higher echelons of the medical industry, there's so many different opinions on how to deal with it. Or you know, like the top two surgeons in the world, one might say wear a knee brace, the other might not believe in knee braces and say that you need to train harder. You know, there's there's no one 
right answer with it. I think education is an important thing for people. And it's something I tried to do actually in one of my very first vlogs is when I when I went to Yeah, you went to the I went to the knee brace factory yeah. and they cast my legs up and I got custom braces made. And the point of the video really for me was to say don't wait till you've had the car crash to put your seatbelt on. You know, like that was my what I took from blowing my knee. I blew the knee that I didn't have the knee brace on. The other knee was fine, I had the knee brace on it. The knee that didn't have the knee brace on, I blew it. So would you recommend for someone that's doing like super technical, you know, wearing boots, doing all those tricks, have a knee brace before I a mean, knee one or? You gotta be honest with yourself and how hard you're pushing yourself. I think this is really important. And the more I get into coaching actually, the more I realize that people can't self-evaluate so well. But <laughs> um, yeah, you've gotta be honest with yourself about where you are, how far you wanna push yourself and you know, what, you, what you're doing, I think unpredictable conditions like if you're competing and you're pushing yourself to the top level of the world against the best guys in the world and you're competing in conditions that are less than perfect because that's where the contest is you got to start thinking all right i could have a head-on collision and it might not be my fault you know it might be the wave it might be the chop it might be the wind dropping out um, there's all sorts of exterior factors that surgeons will never understand but so it's up to the rider. <laughs> it yeah. always will be at the end of the but, day. But, you know, you have to kind of be honest a little bit. Do you yourself. think if you had had a knee brace on that knee, you wouldn't have had the the damage that you did? Or I think it would have been less. It wouldn't, yeah, it would have been definitely less. I've, I've had in incidents where I've de I would have definitely blown my knee if I didn't have a brace on. I've broken my brace, snapped the brace. No way. Just through the force of catching my edge from toe side. You know, when you, yeah. you kind of, dig in toe side, snag your front edge and, and go over. But I was like fully powered in there. It was out in Cape Town actually, it was here. And uh, I felt the knee, the knee brace lock out and then I felt the, the twist inside the brace and it actually snapped the brace on my shin Ooh. and on the top of my thigh here where the twist motion was so harsh. And my knee felt like on the edge. Like, I mean, it was like on the brink of, uh, of something that I didn't want to comprehend. And and for sure, definitely a couple yeah, of times. Yeah, had you not had that brace yeah. on, you would have probably had yeah. a noodle for And you can't it. say, hey, I went to the gym this morning. I mean, like, if you have a car crash, the gym's not going to help. But, you know, it does training helps for sure. But yeah. looking into it deeper with a bit of a knowledge of kite surfing above and beyond a surgery or a personal trainer... I would say that knee braces are a preventative just as much as they are as a recovery. Yeah. And do you train quite a bit to avoid those injuries and things like that? I mean, that's something we touched on a little bit. Yeah, I've had to... So coming back from injury, I had at one point, I had a physiotherapist, personal trainer, masseuse, and a psychotherapist, you know, for like six to eight weeks in the first few months just to like get you kick-started into it. Then you drop the physio and move towards the personal training and I've had a personal trainer pretty much yeah every week since you know since I've been home for like a year and a half who's like who works with you and follows your progress and builds you up again and then you get into that that routine yeah of, of personal training or you just making sure you're always you know at least warming up and being fit for it and like pushing it's you another know. thing isn't it warming up how many people just rock up at the beach chuck the straps on so and go tempting. and send it so tempting after a few you know. beers you get there and sometimes oh, you sit God, there and really? go oh, look at that place doing <laughs> some stretches yeah. I'll just do a couple of jumps it'll be fine no, but I'm of that same same mind yeah it's always been me I've never really cared about it but yeah it's, it's, in, it's a whole the whole 
process of injury and recovery and coming back from it as a test and educational process. Like if you can do it and you can come back, you can get back to where you want to be, that's it's, it's a testament to, you know, wanting to do it enough. Because if you don't want to do it enough, you'll just you won't make yeah, it. Yeah. And you won't get back. It's that drive. You need that drive. You've been doing uh, a kind of new direction for you. Well, semi new direction, I guess, with the coaching that you're doing with Kite Worldwide, with your now lovely wife Sophie. Always lovely, but now wife. Yeah, now wife. Um, so you're running these trips. How's that been? Going from kind of, you know, a pro rider to taking people away and showing them a good time. And well, firstly, I, like, I always it's funny when that because I always promise myself. I will never teach kite surf. You know what I mean? <laughs> Always. Like, I mean, I love it. I love the lifestyle. I mean, I've seen the best that kite surfing has got to offer. But you never wanted to go down. I don't never route. wanted to like get to that point where I teach kite surfing. But also, there's another thing. Perspective's been changed hugely with my injury. All I want to be is on the water and having fun now. You know, and before I was concentrated on the top level riding and a bit more, you know, driven in that respect. But now. I always enjoyed filming and learning, and that's what the whole freeride project concept was with the best guys in the world at the time. So you'd be filming each other, filming each other, it. and learning from them, and then them filming you, and then you know, like having that back and forth between people with different perspectives, and like generating that learning atmosphere, um, you know, in an everyday session. And that's kind of that concept is what I've taken to my sl- slice of life camps. They're called the, the emphasis is on slice of life. It's on fun. And like having the best week we can have, you know, but with a learning, with a lear- with a natural learning sort of atmosphere where I will film the guys, you know, every day and every night we'll have like a video review and we'll sit down a few beers and everyone will get to know each other's styles and what they're going for and like cultivate that very, like above and beyond just going, you need to do this, you need to do this and giving tips and hints, that sort of atmosphere that everyone can learn from each other. And that's the theory of my camps really sort of informal but at the same time structured in the fact that I'm you know I'm always there I'm always pushing them to try what their goals are and finding out how they're riding and like giving them just like very small but key tips for them to improve and like it's, it's been quite an interesting experience I think I've done five or six now in like different places in the world always the best places at the best time of year with the best wind when uh, in partnership with Kite Worldwide and they've got like really nice accommodations and you know they, they know how to do things on the quality side of things. Um, so we've got 19, I think 19 destinations to choose from and yeah just taking groups of kites that want to have a good time on away really on a, on a, on a clip stacking mission. So yeah so they get some it, really, it really is free ride project for, for punters. For punters, yeah. Do you, put the, um, do you put the footage together for them at the end so they can take home those Well, I put the, fo- put the footage together every day uh, in the evening, very roughly, just obviously to highlight more like their learning criteria, you know, their learning tips and stuff. And then, yeah, I aim to put together like a client video or a video of the trip at the end of every trip as to whether that's like a you know, video on my YouTube channel or whether it's, that's a private back-end video for just those guys. Um, it, it changes a little bit, but you know, if they, I kind of I want to try and like encourage, like you know, WhatsApp group. I can send people bits and pieces or any media. I mean, it's normally pretty well. You know, we've got all the good pictures and good clips of them learning, so it's, like, it's really yeah. nice. 
And Sophie does yoga and sort of fitness Sophie does training the, on those camps as well. Yeah, I mean, so. every day we offer like yoga or fitness, normally like a warm up or like warm down in the afternoon or a yoga session, depending on when people want to do it. Um, we haven't actually gone to a destination with no wind yet, so I don't know what we'd do if there's no wind. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really bespoke to the group who's there. And yeah, we sort of not make it up as we go along, but we like cater for a bit of everything. Yeah, and if someone wanted to come on those trips, how'd they go about it? Just so yeah, you go to the Kite Worldwide website, .com I think, or .eu, and um, yeah, click on camps, pro, pro camps, and it comes up with me. I think Linus Erdman does a couple, but it's me and Linus, and we do, yeah, every year there's a, there'll Whole be a roster, yeah, a roster, probably three or four of mine a year, um, in various locations. This year we're doing Zanzibar, Sicily maybe Brazil again, and possibly Western Sahara, which is a pretty awesome spot. And yeah, you go on the website, or hit me up on uh, on Instagram or something. And Easy. I'll, uh, yeah, there you go. We'll, we'll work it up. Yeah. You've obviously done some amazing trips over the years, and you've travelled, you know, I don't know if you've been everywhere, but is there, you know, anywhere that you would definitely want to go back to that you think that's... If I, if I was going to choose somewhere to go for a two-week holiday with Sophie and just have a kick-ass time, where would you go? People always ask me what's my favourite destination. And like, literally well. all the time. The and I can never, ever. you know, there's <laughs> so many factors, isn't there, to consider. Um, I don't know, man. Uh, I guess if, if it's a, a couple's retreat vibe with a... You know, an edge on nice accommodation and a bit of remote separation. That the island off in East Sulawesi in Wakatobi that we went to a few years ago now, went there with uh, Jay Smallcott, a local photographer out who lives in Indonesia, and we just disappeared off on a private charter plane to this remote island with the guys that owned the island, and we stayed there for for ten days or a week and just went kiting, mapping out all the downwinders and. You know, just next level stuff. That was that's the place. Yeah, that's no expense, no expense spared. You go up and just be blown away. Yeah, and be nuts. There's a video about that, isn't there? There is. Yeah, it's called so Wanderlust. Yeah. Wanderlust. I'll stick that in the links as well, so people can yeah. watch that, and then they can come and hog you. Yeah, ride for it. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's so many places, but it depends what you consider good. And is there anywhere that you haven't been that you really want to go that you're like, um, I've heard about that spot? And I yeah, yeah I mean, I. I a lot of the time in our situation, you tend to, you know, people are like, oh, you must, and it's, you only tend to go places where there's a reason for you to go there. You wouldn't just go and blow a load of money on going somewhere because you want to go there. It needs to be led by some reason to go there because yeah. we're kind of always working in inverted commas. Yeah. So is there anywhere that you sort of think, oh, I still haven't managed to make that happen that I'd like to Well, Tom Herbert keeps inviting me to New Caledonia and I've never been there and that looks pretty spot on. Yeah, I've never, Have never you been, not, no, even I've never been there. So there are places so that I haven't long. been. But, yeah, like Maldives, like a bunch of those sort of remote island places um, I'd love to go to. Galapagos I'd like to go to for more than just kiting. But, I mean, it really depends who you're with, where, like, where, you know, what you're into at the time. I was very impressed with Sri Lanka, but not like the places where you would normally go in Sri Lanka, all the other wild places I, was, I really enjoyed. You got a bunch of covers out of that, didn't you? Yeah, at the time, yeah, at the time. There was a little period where I seem to remember you were getting some jit from fellow kites. For like the same cover on. having the same cover on. No, it's just the same pose, different trick. Yeah, same pose, just different kite. I was using my 12 that day and that's yellow and everything else. But yeah. yeah. 
you did quite well with that. You've always been quite good at marketing yourself, and just recently you're on like Good Morning TV or something, weren't you? Like, oh yeah, one of the biggest things. Like that was really good. Yeah. How does that come about? Is that something that you push? Is it something that Sophie's pushing? No, just so that pure was chance, or that was all to do with my slice of life camps, actually. So yeah, my, you know, I've got when you get into things like that, you get a bit more. There's a bit more of a story there, or I don't. I don't really know how it exactly came about but they yeah it called me up and there's a channel channel four sunday brunch at prime time on like sunday on a rainy sunday in the uk for 10 minutes talking about kite surfing which to my knowledge has never really happened before but no i mean probably only lewis going on there yeah lewis died or jump over in a pier Um, yeah i was there just talking explaining the sport and especially since it's now in the olympics um and has a bit more of a mainstream interest there you know, just trending a bit, I guess. And uh... a lot of riders are on incentive budget for like photos and things like that. So, did you get, you know, a good incentive for appearing on Channel Four Breakfast? Yeah, no, I didn't write that one specifically in, unfortunately. But one of the advantages of I've been in the industry a long time. I've been riding for Duotone and Baltimore for a long time. Um, since 2005, I've been with Boards and More and like been like developed as a rider and personally with, with the brand and always been incredibly supported by, the, by them. So, you know, like in terms of my relationship with my, you know, what is my main sponsor, Duotone at the moment, um, they've always, they've always honored, honored things. I've never really, I, I do get incentives obviously and I do get things, but like I operate on a quite a creative level and you can never, you can never, yeah, you can never say, "Hey, like this movie's Just coming out this. in January." You can never say, "Hey, I'm going to be on live TV in five months." It's kind of it ends up being quite organic. And I, you know, the way I am, I say, "You either value me or you don't," you know. And I set that out straight at the beginning, and then that's 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 how it is, you know. And I've been lucky enough to be with, you know, to to uh, you know organically develop. I think with a with a brand and with the products, you know. That, that are now like the, some of the best products out there, I think. So it's, it's been a, it's, yes, it's two way, yeah. two way thing for sure. It's probably quite nice having been with them for so long that you've seen, you know, them grow as well because, you know, they're massive now. And back then they were big, but probably not on the kind of scale that they're at at the moment. Well, I, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, I've been riding for the world's most uncool brand for about 15 years. And now, <laughs> now Nick, Jesse and Graham are. It's, been, it's, been, it's, uh, it's funny to see it happen. But yeah, we, I grew with, grew with the brand and grew as a rider and personally and kind of worked with them to find out what was valuable and how we could, you know, how we could make things cool and make products better and work with the designers. And yeah, a lot of, you know, I think my success as a rider has been involved in, has been to do with my involvement in other things above and beyond just, just competing. Yeah. So the other stuff around that, because I remember yeah. you used to do a lot of videos for, you know, Boards and More where you do their, you were kind of the English speaking person of yeah. the brand. So they needed you to do the voiceovers for, you know, the majority of customers. Obviously, they've got a huge German market, but when you're looking at, globally the the global language of kite surfing is english or it seems to be in terms of yeah so i think when i joined the brand it it was getting to the stage where they were looking to go more international develop markets outside of germany and uk and like outside of europe and english was you know a necessary part of that so i helped 
help develop their and also my video production knowledge I helped develop their sort of their brand videos alongside Carlos who I knew from Fuerteventura who you know I think he maybe even filmed his first video with me I don't know how long ago but we developed you know the, the, their sort of product videos and their lifestyle videos and the brand clips that they sort of now now as an industry standard actually when you look at it it's like rolled out through most of the brands they, they follow a similar similar pattern uh, so developed that and grew with that and became sort of uh, you know more of an advisory input into the video side of things and then yeah developed from there and went you know through a little bit into into R&D and working with Ralph in the design side of things and I was always riding the Vegas and initially for events and they were like right we want to bring the dice out and they you know came to me and said right okay so we're putting you with you know with Ralph on the dice and you're going to develop this supported you know SLE C kite vibe kite and um so yeah I got involved in that at the very beginning and I also had an input with developing the gambler like from from the beginning pushing the the wake star side of things so I guess I've always been there at the back back end of things, back end of you things, know, back end of things like helping out, making sure things, you know, go go smoothly. Or you know, I, I know I know what it is to be a rider, and I know what it is to. Do you enjoy that product development side of it? Is that something that? Yeah, I think anything because it can be quite monotonous, can't it? Just like go out, change the setting, go out, change the setting. Yeah, and you, you, one of the things you said whilst we've been chatting is you love kiteboarding because it's fun. Yeah, and that's your focus. And one of the best ways to ruin a good kite session, I think, is to test the kite. Well, because everyone's yeah. like, "Oh, you test kites, that must hey, be so awesome." That's and you're, work. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> ah, so you separate between so work, work and I'm work mate. Then uh, when you're in work mode, you don't mind. No, you just go out, change the settings, tweak it, tell Ralph what's up with it. Yeah, Ralph, mate, I'm not having fun on this. Bro. <laughs> I'm not having fun. Yeah, that, that for me, that's what that's what developing is. It's like developing the products to not only perform better but to enhance your session I guess you know and Ralph's incredibly technically minded and focused on you know like he's obsessed on being the best at you know what he does which you know he, he operates on a different level to, to me but my you know developing products alongside him is, you know you develop for fun I, I develop for fun like I enhance every element and we kind of work on each bit and I guess like comes. The, the more help you put in with the development, the better the kite ends up being and therefore the more fun you're going to have on it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if you're a rider, you can't be like, oh, I can't be bothered to like, you know, give feedback because that is directly translates into the customer's experience and, and your performance a lot of the time, you know, in contests and things like that. How it all turns out. Which yeah. Is important. And we've got to do an interesting stage, I think, in R&D and development in the industry where... There are standards, you know, there are standards, there are possibilities, there are, yeah, there's a set thing that works, like you can bring a kite out in six months and it will work, you know. Yeah. Um, but to take that and push that further, which, to you know, we, we're driven to do, is, uh, is where innovation becomes more relevant again and where, you know, we're doing projects, collaborating with universities to develop ways to numerically measure the kites and like the power strokes and the aerodynamics and things like that and you know looking into new materials and you know just taking it deeper than than just you know oh, we've got something that works you've had like a hugely prolific career and this will be my last question but you've come from being like 
a young kid driving around with your dad in a yellow van to you know traveling the world and kiting on the you know the world tour and making movies that kind of changed I think changed the outlook of a lot of kiteboarders at the time where people suddenly realized don't have to do competitions I can just go and free ride and then working with brands like Duotone and Boards of More to like develop equipment and things like that you know it's been a great big span is there anything that you kind of regret when you look back on it and think oh you know what if I've just done that a little bit differently or are you sort of sitting here now going you know what I'm out Nice big windows, looking over the bay in Cape <laughs> Town. Looking at Table Mountain. Drinking a nice it's, cold can of castle. Yeah. yeah, it's windy outside. <laughs> I mean, okay, you probably regret banging your finger at yeah, you came to open the door. Regret's a funny thing. I mean, I always explain it to people. I don't know whether they often get it, that my life is just, when I look back at it now, it's a catalogue of bad decisions and terrible choices. <laughs> Almost everything I've done has been contradictory to what would be logical at the time. And uh, I honestly don't regret any of it, or any of them, really. I mean, yeah, I mean, it goes to what we were saying at the beginning of that enjoyment and, and doing things because you really like to do them. Yeah, I mean, there's things, there's always things that you could change, but like, even like when injury, you learn from the bad, the bad things. You develop as a person from the bad things. You come out of things with something that you would never be able to premeditate getting, you know, like you can't steer yourself down a down a road all you have to do is kind of enjoy what you're doing at the time and it seems to work out it seems to work out right i'll tell you in a couple of years when i can't yeah. walk and i'm not sat in cape town yeah when all your knees are yeah, completely shot and, and i haven't paid council tax and yeah, <laughs> i don't have national endurance <laughs> oh, maybe but I you know like i mean that. who think yeah i mean thinking for the short term really or yeah, having a plan for the long term, but you know, having a design for the long term, but thinking about you know, living in the short term, I think that's uh, that's the way I've always operated, and I don't think that gives you time to regret or you know, Worry to about wish things. you'd done something differently because you're, you know, you've got to live in the moment. You're dealing with it. Well, you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. You might yeah. have exactly the same accident you had exactly. a year ago, so just enjoy it while you can. Enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. Excellent. Tom, I think we've been waffling for ages. I mean, we've got a lot. I think we've got yeah, to have to edit this. I think there's going to have to be a few edits. You're going to have that. to edit this. Definitely. What are we on? Well, one, I reckon we're one. one I'm no, 14. One. not too bad. I know that might be, that's really weird, actually, the way that times. It might be loads more. But Tom, thank you very much indeed. No worries, bro. Thanks that was time. fantastic. That was really good. I enjoyed that. Yeah, it was nice. Excellent. It's funny to talk about it all again, actually. There we have it. Tom Court's chat in the bag. Um, I enjoy catching up with Tom. It's always quite fun speaking to people who I know because I get to ask them questions that I might not necessarily ask them when I'm in the pub or uh, at a restaurant or down the beach or something like that. So it's quite nice to kind of put them on the spot and I find I learn a little bit more about them. Um, I really enjoyed some of his tales about when he was a young kid just telling his parents that he'd booked a flight to Brazil um, and his kind of carefree attitude towards travelling and things like that. And hopefully, um, you know, his knee stays fit and healthy and he continues to enjoy the sport that he loves and carries on kiting for a good while yet. Um, next episode, I'm going to try and get through. I've got four from Cape Town that I really want to get out there because they were recorded back in February. So they're well overdue. So the next episode will be one of those conversations. I don't know who it will be yet, but I'll have a listen 
and decide which one we're going to launch next. And I'm going to try and get that out in the next week or so. Um, whilst I'm away traveling, I've got a bit of time um, sat in the van doing things. So let's hope we can get another one out to you soon. Thanks ever so much for listening to me, Ruchata, with the Intriguing Beings podcast. Have a fantastic week.